as we continue to make our way through this chapter, which is probably taking us longer than any other chapter will as we go through the book of Genesis, I want to read once again from verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Before we look at these and other words that are found on the subject, let us pray for the help and the grace of God. Most gracious and blessed God, we do thank you that you made us in your image. We do bless you that you made us that we might worship you and serve you and communion with you and seek to bring glory unto you. And we pray that as we consider this theme that you would capture our hearts with the wonder of what you have done in creating us as you have and destining us for glory to come through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that for his sake we would be a credit unto your name. We would be a people that show forth your praises. You who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Bless us now with the Holy Spirit to teach us and help us as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote, Man is like one who has been cast sleeping on a desert island, only to awake and discover that he does not know where he came from, why he is there, and where he is going. When men tell us that the great problem that is facing people today is that of their own identity, Modern philosophers, they are just reiterating, really, what Pascal was saying way back in the 17th century. And confronted with a vast and silent universe, and seeing ourselves unable, it seems, anyway, to escape from the little point on earth that we occupy, and considering these things, we're perplexed, and we tend to be afraid as a people. We long for truth, but we continually discover our own self-deception and the falsehood of everybody that's around us. We seek for happiness, but only find disappointment. And we look for stability, and we look for permanence, but all around us we only see change and decay. Where have we come from? Why are we here? Why and who are we? These are the kinds of questions that naturally come to the hearts and the minds of many people unbelievers as well as Christians alike. And this restless quest for self-identity, this is what I believe is to a certain extent anyway, behind the confusion in the minds of so many young people in our generation about their own gender. They don't know what gender they are, it seems like. And they even go through radical surgery to switch genders. And this uncertainty about who we are, it also, I think, is behind the urge to experiment with same-sex intimacy. And it drives others to cover their faces with tattoos or change their appearance in some other radical way. And in all these different ways, unable to find satisfaction and happiness with their own identity as they are, even some resort to taking their own lives. Now, if we are ever to discover our true self-identity, we need to begin where the Bible begins. Man is a creature that is created in the image of God. That is the most fundamental thing about our self-identity. The verses that we read just a moment ago, they tell us about man's highest innate distinction. Every human being has been created in the image of God. In our last sermon on this subject, we took up this subject under three headings. First of all, we saw that in this, these verses we have a divine emphasis. It's clear that the creation of man is the apex of God's creative work. And there are three things in this passage that we noted that emphasize 
this fact that man is created in the image of God. We see, first of all, that it's the final creative event of the week. The majestic march of the days climaxes with the creation of the first two human beings. We saw that the space given to this event is more than any other in this chapter. We noted also the Hebrew word bara used repeatedly in this, uh, these verses to speak about what God did. These word, this word bara for create is the strongest word. It is used sparingly in the first chapter of Genesis. But in verse 27, it is used three times, all in one verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is the way Hebrews oftentimes put great emphasis upon something. They repeat this and use different words. This is something of a Hebrew superlative. It stresses the importance of this event. And then we also noted in the second place that what we have here is a divine collaboration. A collaboration is a work that's accomplished by cooperative efforts by more than one person. And this is what we have in mind in the words that begin with verse 26. Let us make man. Let us, it says. In each of the other acts of creation, God uses different language. He uses then God said, or some variety of then God said. And then after that occurs let there be, uh, or something that's very similar. And so instead of reading all these then God said and then it happened according to God's command, here we read let there not be man, but instead we read in verse 26, let us make man. And this sets the creation of man apart from every other creative act. And it's also noteworthy, we don't read, let me make man. The text reads, let us make man. God uses a plural pronoun to refer to himself. And what are we to make of this? Well, Isaiah 40 tells us that God consults with nobody outside of himself. He wasn't talking to the angels or anybody else. He was talking within the personality of the three persons of the Trinity. And it would be going too far to say that the Hebrews understood very clearly the doctrine of the Trinity at this point. But there is still, right at the very outset of the Bible, this idea of God being plural and yet God being one. And clearly this implies, therefore, plurality within unity. Verse 2 speaks about the Spirit. And here there is this plurality that is assumed. And this highlights the wonder and the greatness of what God is doing here. As Calvin says, hitherto God has been introduced simply as commanding. Now, when he approaches the most excellent of all of his works, he enters into a consultation. And then in the third place, we began to take up the main heading, the third main heading, which is the main heading here. Having considered the divine emphasis and the divine collaboration, we came to a divine image. Verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then in verse 27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What is it that makes man so unique among all the creatures that God made? It is this, that God made man in his own image. And among all of God's creatures... Men and women, they have this highest of all honors. They, you, represent and express God. What, what honor can be higher than that? The Latin Vulgate we noted in our last study renders the, ray, the phrase in our image with the words to our image. It's the picture of a sculptor cutting away. That's the idea that's in the word. And he shapes the image according to a particular pattern and it's God's own pattern, his own likeness. So this is the picture that the word conveys. And in a literal sense, an image is a visible representation. In the Bible, the Hebrew word for image is sometimes used to refer to a statue that's fashioned to represent a king, like the statue erected to represent Nebuchadnezzar. And bowing down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, it was an expression of worshiping Nebuchadnezzar and submitting to him. And yet nobody thought that that golden 90-foot statue was 
Nebuchadnezzar himself, they saw that it was a visible representation of the king. In his allegorized novel, Voyage to Venus, C.S. Lewis, he paints a word picture of the dawn of history. And he makes Adam resemble Jesus Christ in this word picture. And this is not far-fetched because Christ, in his human form, he was sinless. He was the perfect image of God. And so for Adam, in his sinless state, he was much more perfect as an image bearer of God than we are. And writing about Adam, Lewis says this, It was a face which no man can say he does not know. You might ask how it was possible to look upon it without idolatry, not to mistake for that which it was unlikeness. For the resemblance was in its own fashion infinite, so that almost you could wonder at finding no sorrows on his brow and no wounds in his hand and feet. And yet there was no danger of mistaking, not one moment of confusion, no least sally of the will towards forbidden reverence. Where likeness was greatest, mistake was least possible. In other words, he was so like God, and yet you couldn't mistake him for, for being God. Likeness greatest, mistake least possible. Perhaps this is always so. A clever waxwork can be made so like a man that for a moment it deceives us. The great portrait, which is far more deeply like him, does not. This portrait of God, it doesn't deceive us into thinking that th this is God. Plaster images of the Holy One may before now have drawn to themselves the adoration that they were meant to arouse for the reality. But here, where he's talking about idols that people worship, but this isn't like that. He says, here where is a living image, like him within and without, made by his own bare hands out of the depth of divine artistry, his masterpiece of self-portraiture coming forth from his workshop to delight all the worlds, walked and spoke. It could never be taken for more than an image. Nay, the very beauty of it lay in the certainty that it was a copy, like and not the same. An exquisite reverberation of untreated music prolonged in a created medium. Well, the astonishing teaching of these verses, then, is that as creatures made in the image of God, men and women are like God in certain respects. We are not gods, but we represent him. We are like him in these different ways. And this chapter, it doesn't specifically lay all these areas of likeness. We have to look at other portions of scripture to get the hints, and in this chapter as well. And the comparison is is deliberately, I think, not specifically spelled out as being one thing or another. And this allows us to see several points of comparison. And last time we noted three of these areas of comparison. First of all, we noted that this was an indelible likeness. Indelible ink can't be erased. The image of God is so indelible in man that even the entrance of sin does not do away with it. In Genesis chapter 5, Adam bore a son in his likeness, and this is said right after uh, he, he was created in the image of God. We're not to, to uh, uh, murdering somebody. Genesis 9 is so serious because it is murdering somebody in the image of God. James 3.9 forbids us to curse somebody made in the image of God. These are all references to people that are, that are living after the fall, and not necessarily godly people even. They still, in some way or another, are image bearers of God. This is an indelible likeness, therefore. And we noted also an intellectual likeness. And again, so we have it in our minds, I'd like to read again from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. We read in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who was renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And here, referring to believers, Paul says that they have put on the new man, 
And this new man has been renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Clearly a reference to God making man in his own image. And that image has been defaced by our sins. Our minds are darkened. But one area of the image being restored is that the knowledge that we once had is restored. Our minds are able to see spiritual truth now. This is part of the renewal of that image. It hasn't been obliterated. It's indelible. But it can be distorted, you see, by sin. It doesn't create an accurate picture of God. And so there is an intellectual likeness. Part of our being the image of God has to do with this fact. And then we also noted that there is a moral likeness. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 and following. Paul says that the work of the renovation of believers is the renewal of the new man, here I quote, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And in the recreation that comes to men when they are renovated, women when they're renovated, and made like God once again, and in, at least in some sense, they're, they're, what the, one of the aspects of this becoming more of a better representative of God is that we are renewed in the image of God in terms of our righteousness and holiness. And then this brings us now to a fourth feature, which we did not get to in our last study, and I want to spend perhaps more time on this feature than the other two that we're going to cover this morning. But there is, in the fourth place, represented here, I believe, a personal likeness to God. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And previously, throughout the creation account, God created by issuing a command. And he used various, various differences, of, uh, various kinds of saying, Let us there be, or let there be this, or let there be that. Let there be light. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Let the earth bring forth vegetation. Let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures. Let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its kind. So there's all these let there be's throughout the chapter. But now instead of this let there be, and God says, let us make man in our image. And these words, they represent interpersonal communication. Let us, he says. They hint at an interpersonal relationship that exists within the triune Godhead. He consults with himself. And they remind us that God has personality. And we're using that word personality not to refer to the different character traits that God has or we, we would have. But he is a person. And in fact there are three persons within the triune Godhead. And because man has been created in the image of God, he too has personality. And again, I don't have in mind what we often call personality. When you say, well, he's got a good personality, referring to some of his traits. We describe another's personality, and what we try to do is we say that this person has a sour personality, she's a sour puss, or, or we will say that somebody's sweet. Or maybe this person is exuberant, or maybe this person's just a laid-back person. Or somebody's confident or hesitant, you see. And we give all these various personality traits when we describe various people. But the biblical idea of personhood is what I have in mind here. And this is not the same as what we speak of when we speak of personality traits. When the Bible speaks of the personhood of somebody, it is speaking of the fact that each individual person has his own mind, has his own emotions, has his own will to decide what to do. And as persons... We interact with other persons. Persons communicate with one another. You try to communicate what's on your mind to that person's mind. And you use different words to communicate. And you shed a tear over some situation. And your tears make an impact upon that friend of yours. So that she or he begins to feel what you feel. There is this interchange of thoughts and feelings between persons you see. And within the persons of the Trinity, there is therefore this personal communication and, communi and communion. And likewise, those who are created in God's image, they are persons that interact with other persons. 
And this is why solitary confinement is one of the most severe punishments that have, have ever been invited invented by man. People that live in, were put in solitary confinement, many of them, they, they just go absolutely raving mad because it's so contrary to what we are as persons, to be totally cut off from every other creature and to be shut up in a room all by ourselves. And likewise, uh, there are other ways in which we stilt, you see, our personal communion with one person and with another. And Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, I'm not going to go along with everything that he's written here, obviously, but in this instance, he says something that's very helpful. He says, and this is a book about the image of God, Thus, the image of God means, first of all, that human beings cannot be closed in on themselves. Human beings who attempt this betray themselves. To be in the image of God implies relationality. It is the dynamic that sets the human being in motion toward the totally other. He's speaking about God as being the other. And hence, it means the capacity for relationship. It is the human capacity for God. Human beings are, as a consequence, most profoundly human when they step out of themselves and, be, and become capable of addressing God on familiar terms. He's speaking about an interpersonal relationship between my person and the person of God. And this interpersonal relationship within the triune Godhead which is hinted by the words, let us make man in our image, this is manifested in much greater fullness even in the New Testament. The incarnation of Christ, the sending of the Spirit, they reveal more clearly the second to the third persons of the triune Godhead. And from the New Testament, we learn that God himself never existed as a single, lonely, solitary, isolated individual. In John 17, Jesus speaks of the fellowship that he enjoyed in eternity past as a son with his father. He speaks about the communion that they had. And as the great 4th century church father Athanasius used to say, the father has never been without a son. There always was this father-son relationship between these two persons. Now certainly Genesis 1 does not furnish the reader with the full understanding of the concept of the Trinity that later on is more easily seen in the New Testament. But if we refuse to take into consideration what's later on revealed about this, our understanding of personhood as a very significant aspect of the image of God is impoverished. Personhood is a trait that we share with God, but we don't share with animals. This is something that makes you and me, me different, makes us like God, but makes us unlike animals. Human beings have self-consciousness. They are self-reflective. A human being has the ability to project himself or herself into the mind of another and, and try to discern and figure out what that person is thinking about you. That's, that's the kind of thing that an animal never thinks thoughts like that. He doesn't have this kind of a self-consciousness in that way, he acts by instinct. But we are persons. And therefore, we can share thoughts. We can use words. And it's true that a bond can be established, yes, between an animal and a human. Our dogs like to see us after we've been away for the day. And they wag their tails. They're happy. There's something of a relationship that's there. But full person-to-person -person communication and full personal relationship, this can only be enjoyed by those who are created in the image of God. And more importantly, a personal relationship with God can only be enjoyed by those that are created in his image. Now it is very significant that immediately after God had created man and woman in his image, he spoke to them. One of the first things that we see here in the very next verse after our text, or especially looking now at verses 26 and 27, but if we read the next verse, verse 28, if you have your Bibles open, you can look there. We read, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, He spoke to them, Be fruitful and multiply, 
fill the earth and subdue it. The very first thing God does after he makes them is he speaks to them. He communicates to them. And as image bearers, we are able to hear and receive God's word. No other earthly creature can do that. And the importance of this is underscored further by the name that John's gospel gives to the Lord Jesus. He is called the word. The word communicates. In the beginning was the word, he says. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There was this personal relationship. And he is the word. He is the communication of God, you see, to mankind. And these words remind us of Athanasius' great saying that we quoted earlier, that God has never been without his son, which means that he has never been without his word. And within the eternal Godhead, there's always been word, always been communication. And so within this relationship, you see, there is communication by words. And this means that God created us to be like him in this respect. He created us to talk to us. And he created us to talk back to him. He created us that we might have a relationship, that we might have communion with one another. This is something that never took place with any of the other creatures, the earthly creatures that God made. Well, this then is the fourth feature of being in the image of God, a personal likeness. But now I want to come to the fifth aspect of this relationship, this image bearing of God. There is a whole likeness. And perhaps it would have been actually better for me to say there is a body slash soul likeness. I have in mind here that we are image bearers as body soul beings. Now the very nature of an image is that it is a visible representation. The question is arisen, well, is it only in respect of his being a spirit that man's an image of God? God is a spirit, and how could we be image bearers of God in our bodies, as well as our spirits? And the answer is plainly revealed in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. When God made man in his own image, he didn't create him as just a spirit. Right after he created them, male and female, it says, what does it say? He says to the first pair, the very first thing he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Spiritual beings that don't have bodies don't procreate. These are physical beings that he's just described as being created in his image. And he speaks of them as being able to, to multiply and fill the earth. And we also know that man's physicality was also included in this image-bearing capacity because when God created man, he created him right from the dust of the ground. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we read, in God, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And that which came from the dust is man. Man's being, that which constitutes him, what he is, it includes the material as well as the immaterial aspects of his being. We are body-soul creatures. And both sin and holiness are ascribed to the body as well as to the soul in the Bible. There are certain sins, such as fornication, adultery, would be examples that especially involve the body. And at the same time, such sins, although they're sinned in the body, they drag the soul down along with them. The body is also united with the soul as the habitation of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul dwells upon this in 1 Corinthians 6. Perhaps you could turn there with me to, to that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want to read beginning with verse 18. And you can see how he emphasizes sins of the body as well as sins of the, of the spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse, 16, verse 18, excuse me. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 
For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now holiness, as we saw earlier, is an important aspect of our image-bearing capacity. And holiness pertains to holiness in body as well as holiness in our souls. In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, that's the body, and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness, it involves cleansing ourselves from physical sins and spiritual sins, both. Because we are physical and spiritual beings combined. Now somebody will say, well, Jesus says God's a spirit, John chapter 4. So how can man's body be created in the image of God if God doesn't have a body like men, like the children's catechism says? Well, this seems like a contradiction. Isn't it more accurate, somebody would say, to say that man's soul, not his body, is the thing that's created in the image of God? Well, the answer is that creation, including the physical heavens, declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. We read in Psalm 19. And his invisible attributes, Paul says in Romans 1, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what he has made. The physical things we see reveal spiritual truths. Reformed theologian Herman Bavink, he writes this, all creatures are embodiments of divine thoughts, and all of them display the footsteps or vestiges of God. Everything God made in some way, even these physical things, they in some way declare God. And in the same way God intended that our bodies, as well as our soul, that they would manifest the glory of our Creator. In his commentary on Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Calvin, after he points out that the soul of man is his chief part, he says this, Therefore, by this word, the perfection of our whole nature is designated. As it appeared when Adam was endued with a right judgment, had affections in harmony with reason, had all his sense sound and well regulated, and truly excelled in everything good. So he says we were like God in all these different ways, our will, our affections, our mind. He's speaking about spiritual aspects. And this, he says, is the chief part of how we represent God. And so he says, thus the chief seat of the divine image was in his mind and heart where it was eminent. And yet listen to this. Yet there was no part of him, he refers to the physical being, in which, is, there is, in which some scintillations of it did not shine forth. And he goes on to speak about how the body, even a body, reflects the glory of God. Now consider with me different things, how this is so. Just think about the expressiveness of the human face. The unique ability for us to express our thoughts just by our facial expressions. That's why a sit-down face-to-face meeting is always best if you're wanting to work out an issue. We can read each other a little bit by our facial expressions. You can't read what a fish is thinking by looking at its face. You can read what a person, perhaps at least a little idea, by looking at their face. There's the unique ability of the human tongue to form words, to articulate ideas. There's the dexterity of the human hand. There's nothing like the human hand in all of creation. The ability to use this tool that God has given to us right in our bodies to craft the most intricate and beautiful of objects There's the eye. The eyes of men you see and the eyes of women can express many thoughts. There could be the stern look you see of somebody that's angry, of somebody that wants a pound of flesh you see. There could be a a painful look that comes through the, the eye or there could be a bounding joy that's reflected in the twinkle of a person's eye. And as vehicles of that which rells up within the depths of our souls you see, our physical bodies, our faces in these ways, our tongues, our eyes, our physical bodies, they are remarkable vehicles, you see, in which the lineaments of God can be manifested. 
Now consider how this was supremely so with the Lord Jesus. There's a lot in the New Testament about what he looked like, uh, what, what his expressions. Anger was written all over his face as he looked around at the hardness of heart with those who had no mercy uh, for people in distress. Come back and be healed the next day. He was angry. You could see it right in his face. And the sight of the same eyes, those very same eyes, were all that it took to make Peter weep bitterly as he, his eyes met the eyes of his Savior. Think about the many times we read also of his hands. Hands that overturn tables. A muscular person throwing tables over and pushing people out of the temple. He used his hands, you see, in a very vigorous way there. And then he also has hands that rescue Peter from the waves. Hands that mix spittle with clay in order to anoint a blind man's eyes. Hands that touch an untouchable leper. Hands that take the bread and break it at the Last Supper. Hands that even allow wicked people to nail them to a cross that he might suffer there and die for you and for me. Never was there any person whose body so perfectly manifested the holiness and the mercy and the love of God like the body of our Lord and Savior. And in some way, therefore, we are like the Lord Jesus in that we still have some resemblance to, to God in this way that we express many things through our, uh, through our faces, through our tongues, our hands, and so forth. And every, would that every member that we have is constantly being uh, consecrated to God. But then I want to come down to our final likeness. There is also revealed here in this passage, sixthly, an equal likeness. The Bible often uses the word man to refer to females as well as males. And I've used the word man throughout these last two sermons in the same way. Every time I use the word man, I'm not referring to males necessarily, just males. I'm referring to mankind, male and female together. And political correctness makes us hesitant to use the word that way today. I'm kind of stubborn. I'm going to use it anyway to, to use it that way. Um, it's still, I think, a good term for humanity. The Hebrew word Adam, for man, it's precisely the way the English speakers have traditionally used the word man. The Hebrew word Adam refers to humankind, not the male part of humankind. It's ma ma human, humanness, male and female. And the primary meaning of Adam, or man, is human being, or human race, without differentiating the sexes. In such language, it has nothing to do with being sexist or imposing oppressive male domination upon females so that we need to stop talking about manholes because somehow that, that is an insult to women. It, 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 it's absolutely ludicrous. God's word doesn't encourage male superiority, you see, or female inferiority. That's not what, what, what this all communicates. It, it just simply speaks here, the use of this word of mankind. But lest anybody imagine that it's only those of the male gender that are created in the image of God, our text makes it very plain that this is not the case. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this stands in contrast with what was said about the other creatures. Nothing said about the male and female fish male and female apes or whatever. Nothing like that in the first part of the Genesis. It wasn't necessary to mentor, mention gender. God just tells them to be fruitful and multiply, but as you get into specifics. But as God refers to man in the image of God, he takes special pains to let us know that men and women are equally created in the image of God. He didn't create man in his image and women then in the image of man. He created man, male and female, in his image. Both male and female reflect the glory of God. And as one excellent commentator adds, that man and the woman are images of God separately, and they are also images of God together. 
in their relationship with one another. And therefore, with respect to their dignity, their worth, in the New Testament church, in the new creation, Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying slaves are free, you're same value. Male and female, you're same dignity. You don't have one that's better than the other. He's saying that. We're all one in Christ. And likewise in the home. Although there are different role relationships in the home between husbands and wives, they are joint heirs of the grace of eternal life. Uh, Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 7. So both in the church and also in the home, there are different roles for men and women. But we must never imagine that these different roles mean that men are more valuable and women are kind of inferior. They're sitting in the lower place while the important people, the men, they, 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 they sit in the other place. We must never begin to think that. It is our high honor to be created in God's image. And this high honor is equally borne by women and men. But now as we seek to draw some lessons out of these six aspects of the likeness of, of, uh, of men and women made in the image of God. And by the way, uh, some have suggested dominion is part of it, but I think dominion is more of a function. And we're going to get to that when we treat the whole issue of dominion in a future sermon. But by way of application, the first thing I want to stress is that man, and here I'm speaking of both male and female, is a special creature. And what I especially have in mind at this point is that from the beginning, human beings were given a dignity that sets them apart from every other earthly creature, every other living creature that walks on the earth. Both mankind and the land animals, they were created on the sixth day. Both man and animals they were created on the sixth day, but they have a separate ancestry. There is absolutely no room in the Bible for the idea that man has an ancestry in the apes, or ape-like creatures, which in turn descended from simpler creatures and ultimately from a primordial soup. There's absolutely, this chapter is absolutely opposed to that idea. Now, in one sense, man has a kinship with the animals, Animals where the earth brought forth. God says, let the earth bring forth these animals. And in a different way, but in somewhat of a similar way, we read he took the dust of the ground and he formed man, as we read later on in chapter 2. And so there is a relationship, you see, to the earth that we both bear. But man's whole being is in the image of God, and this sets him completely apart from every other creature. Man's whole being, body, and soul is a reminder of God. Now, there are some philosophers, there are some scientists and ethicists that suggest that humans have no more right to special status than any other creature. And this is the logic of naturalistic evolution. And it's not uncommon for some extremists to put animal rights above the worth of human rights. Millions of dollars will be spent to saving a whale. Well, millions of dollars will be spent not to save human life, but rather to snuff it out of the wound. What a contradiction. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not against saving whales. I'm fully behind efforts to, per, to preserve coral reefs, for instance. And I'm behind keeping from overfishing that will drive certain species in the seas to extinction. I'm against that. I'm in favor of preventing that, I should say. But when the same politicians that want to save this or that animal also want to force all of us to have to pay for the slaughter of millions of babies in the womb, babies created in the image of God, I am outraged at that. Genesis 9 prescribes capital punishment for those who murder human beings. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. Killing babies is killing creatures made in the image of God. This is serious. It's a serious sin that our country's guilty of. It cries out for judgment. Over 60 million so far. Now whatever you think about what should be done about 
killing babies in the womb. This much is very clear. God is incensed over the slaughter of all these babies made in the image of God since Roe versus Wade. But abortion, this is just a logical, this is a logical fruit of the theory of evolution. Genocide is the logical fruit of evolution. Hitler's Holocaust, this was the fruit of the diabolical goal of creating a genetically superior race and the idea that the least fit do not deserve to survive. This is Darwinianism coming out in the open, you see. You kill off the ones that are less desirable. You try to have the right, the right breeding, you see, so we will get a superior German race. That's what comes from the theory of man and animals having the same ancestry and survival of the fittest. It's also diabolic, called the idea of hybrid human beings. In 2019, scientists in China, they created embryos containing both human and monkey cells. And this team of scientists, they wanted to create these hybrid embryos, and they were called chimeras or chimeras, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And they did this to grow organs for the purpose of transplants. And they think that these kind of Frankenstein experiments are perfectly okay because we all came from apes anyway. So what's the harm in mixing us up a little bit again and coming out with maybe some faster growing lungs maybe if we do this? But this kind of daring, horrifying experiment is a direct defiance against the God who created man in his image and didn't make man from the apes. The evidence for mankind being of an altogether higher origin origin is just absolutely abundant. One of the most stunning examples of this is the human ability to use language. Now there are simple things that are communicated among creatures. Um, there's, there are birds that communicate by sexual displays before their mates. and You can watch those nature shows and it's pretty amazing that all they go through. And they communicate in a, in, a, in a simple way. Dolphins are said to talk, so to speak, by re, way of uh, a radar and the little clicks that they make. But this is far from speaking to another in sentences and paragraphs and chapters. John Short from Answers in Genesis, he emphasized that another form of language has been ascribed supposedly to Sarah a chimpanzee from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And this chimpanzee uses plastic symbols to convey messages like, I want an apple. But this is as far as it'll go. It's a concrete thing that's just almost like a, like a response that's, that's instinctive, so to speak. But there's no abstract communication of ideas from that ch chimpanzee. It'll never get above that level of just picking up the right color or the right shape to get what he wants. It doesn't go beyond that. Only man communicates by speech and by writing. And this has happened from the dawn of history. The acquisition of language is the most brilliant achievement of the human brain, says Dennis Fry in his book Homo Loquens, Man Talking Animal. To utter a word, he writes... The infant has to coordinate breathing with delicate movements of palate, tips, and tongue. Displacement by a fraction of a millimeter gives a different sound. In order to communicate, he has to amass information concerning vocabulary, syntax, phonetic systems, grammar, rhythm patterns, and intonation. You take just the last of those examples that he gave, the intonation. How many different meanings can you give by just the way you say the simple word no? No. No. Many other ways. Just by the intonation you give of that one word, it communicates. It's amazing. There's been those that have studied all that's stored up in the brain and how much it's able to store, and I'm sure that these are, these are estimates but one such estimate of the total storage capacity in the human brain puts it at a quadrillion pieces of information. That's, that's 
got three more zeros than a trillion. It's, it's a one with a 15 zeros after it. And the authors of an inference language test, they comment on the complexity of the task that's demanded of a little infinite infant that, that takes encoded word symbols and they're transmitted through the air as sound patterns. And he learns to produce meaningful interpersonal communications through the articulation you see of words and the use of, and the use of abstract symbols even. And yet this is something that an infant learns to do. Truly, man's creation in the image of God, including his linguistic abilities, his ability to communicate, because God is word, he communicates. This is stunning. It sets him apart from every other earthly creature. And I don't care how many Massachusetts Institute of Technology try to keep on experimenting with apes. They will never prove anything different. But then, and here, this is something that really I especially wanted to get to here by way of application. One of the features of the image of God is personal likeness. Within the triune Godhead, there are three persons, each having a personal relationship with the other. Christ is the word. He is personal communication. He represents that. And this highlights the fact that God wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to have a personal relationship with me. Do you children? He, wants a, he, he doesn't want you just to say things your parents said and as long as you're living them there, get along with what they do and say what you know that you they know. He wants you personally to have a relationship with him. And only when you enter into a personal relationship with God will you ever find satisfaction. It is never going to be found any other way. Only in knowing God, only in having a relationship with God can you find out who you really are. You were made in his image. You were made to communicate to him, have a relationship with him. And it's not until you discover that. Only then will you have satisfaction. Only then will you discover who you are. Only in this will you experience eternal life. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer, he prays, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, the biblical idea of knowledge is not just knowing a bunch of facts. It's not just assembling a bunch of information. It's communion knowledge, fellowship knowledge that the Bible speaks about. And you're never going to discover your true humanness apart from entering into this personal relationship with God. And as an image bearer of God, you have been created with the ability by God's grace, to enter that relationship. But you'll always experience great frustration in your life, in all your relationships, in all that you try to do. You will be frustrated until you come finally to surrender to God and say, I need you, Lord. I want to have you regulate my life. I want to know you. I want to be like you. I want to represent you better to the world than I do now. And central to the idea of being a person is the idea of a relationship. And sin has broken off our relationships with God and with each other as well. And this can only be restored through the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus shed his precious blood that he might bring you to the place where you are reconciled to God. You are enemies of God now. You've turned against him. You've rebelled against him. And only through the blood of Christ can you be brought into a relationship where you love him. You're not enemies, but you're lovers now. You're friends now. This is what God wants. And this involves a relationship that has begun only through the Lord Jesus and his blood. And once you've entered into a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to grow in that relationship. We can't just be content with where we are in our relationship with God. We need to grow. And this involves regular communication. It involves spending time in his word. You can't expect to be, grow in your relationship with God if you never read the Bible. 
It, it involves you praying to God, speaking with God. You can't grow a relationship with your wife if you never talk to her. It involves that kind of relationship type of building. And that takes time, and it takes an investment of the time. It involves developing the same mindset about things. It's amazing how Juanita and I think the same way about so many things, and yet we're very different. But God has blended us together. This is what he does in, in, in marriage. And marriage involves a one-flesh relationship, but it's much deeper than that. It involves, you see, getting to a, a oneness of heart, you see. And, and this is what God wants from you and me in our relationship with him. It's the opposite, you see, of walling off certain compartments of our lives from each other or from God. It involves, you see, becoming more loving, more communicative, and so forth with the Lord. Marjorie Williams wrote a, a book that I think was basically a book for children. I'm pretty sure it is. It's called The Velveteen Rabbit. I don't, I've never read the, the book, but maybe some of you are familiar with that book, The Velveteen Rabbit. And this is what she says in this book, or this is what the characters say. The velveteen rabbit turned to the old wise experienced skin horse in the nursery and asked, what is real? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and stick out a stick out hand, handle? See, these are toys talking to each other. What's real, she says. The skin horse said, real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child really loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get sh very shabby, but once you are real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. Well, obviously, this is talking about real communication, real relationship between a little girl that loves her velveteen rabbit in, in the way that is real. And this is a depiction, is it not, of what God wants from you and from me, a real relationship, a relationship that involves communication, that involves affection, that involves love. May the Lord grant us that kind of relationship more and more with himself. Well, I had wanted to bring out a third application, but you can process this in your own minds. But our ultimate hope is the Lord Jesus, who is the most perfect image-bearer of God. It's through him and him alone that our image-bearing is, is brought back to where it, what it ought to be in our relationship with the Lord our God. He is the image of God par excellence. Look to him. If you would want your relationship to be repaired and to be strengthened, look to him, the great hope, the great, the great one who will bring this to pass. May he be working in our hearts more and more to bring us into the personal relationship that you and I have been speaking about and thinking about during this last hour. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you, we bless you that you want a relationship with us. And it's a rebuke to our sinful hearts that we run away from you. We avoid spending time with you. We prefer to go do other things too often. We put off times of prayer. We neglect it in the morning when we ought to start it out the day with it. We neglect it when we're about to do something, about to make a decision. We forget to take you into every parts of our lives. We pray, Lord, that as image bearers, that we would more and more have the kind of personal relationship with you that you especially designed for men and women created in your image. We pray, too, that body and soul, physically and spiritually, you would help us to perfect holiness and the fear of God, that we would abstain from those things that desecrate those things that ruin and, and mar, I should say, the, the image-bearing capacity that we have. Help us both physically and spiritually to be perfecting holiness, to be more and more made in the likeness of the true image of God, the Lord Jesus, 
who is in your perfect likeness. Help us, O Lord, for we are weak. Work in the hearts of those that are strangers to your grace, that this very day you would create a longing in their hearts that they might be right with you, that they might have a relationship with you. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.